Welcome to the Power Hour. I'm Adrienne Herbert, wellness coach, international speaker and author. Each week I speak to a variety of guests from business founders to Olympic athletes, leading coaches, change makers and innovators to find out their daily habits, their rules to live by and what motivates them to get up out of bed each day. Personally, I am on a mission to encourage, motivate and inspire. So I hope that the Power Hour will help you to achieve your personal and professional goals. Welcome back to the Power Hour podcast. Today I am joined by social psychologist, professor and author Cassie Holmes. Cassie, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to join you. Oh my gosh, we have so much to talk about in this one hour. I think it's going to be impactful to say the least. So where to begin? You teach a class at UCLA and you and you research the role of time in cultivating happiness and satisfaction in life. Now, this is, of course, an area that I've been obsessed with for a very long time. Hence the reason for creating this podcast, The Power Hour Show. So before we get into all of my questions for you about time, and about our perception of time and our increasing need to to measure time or to value and to measure how we're spending it. Firstly, I'd love to start by talking to you about happiness and about satisfaction, because these two things are, of course, closely linked, but they're not the same. So how do you define happiness and how do you define satisfaction and what are the main differences between the two? Yeah, and I'm so glad you asked because I actually use the term happiness to encapsulate both, both the joy, the sort of positive emotion that we feel during our days, as well as the satisfaction we feel about our lives. So I use the term happiness broadly to encapsulate in the literature, we refer to it as subjective well-being. And it's important but as you noted, there are sort of instances in which how we feel in the moment doesn't completely line up with how satisfied we feel about our days, about our lives. So having that evaluative cognitive component. But honestly, actually, a lot of the time they are they do move together. And actually in the work that I do, what I'm really promoting and advising people towards is spending their time in ways that both feel joyful during, as well as they feel satisfied about and come, come out of spending that time feeling a sense of gratification and greater meaning and fulfillment. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that word gratification, because I also, this is something I think can be quite contradictory. You know, you just described joyful, doing something that's joyful whilst you're doing it. So you're experiencing a feeling of happiness in the moment, as well as kind of, I guess, forecasting and thinking ahead. Whereas I think I typically think about delayed gratification. You know, it's something that we hear a lot of people talk about. I talk to my young son about this idea that actually sometimes you have have to do difficult things or you have to delay the in the moment exactly what you want when you want it in order to have a more favorable outcome in the end so yeah how does it fit along with this idea of delayed gratification yeah and interestingly they actually again there are these um, sort of instances where they are uncoupled but the research shows that more often than not they actually move together so even you know like the as you come out of 
spending your hour in a particular way and I ask you to rank, you know, like how, not rank, rate, how, how do you feel? Oftentimes that sense of happiness, satisfaction gets coupled together because yes, even though it might've been like hard to walk up that sort of piece of the mountain, um, when you look back, even immediately afterwards, like, like that was satisfying. And interestingly, if you look at what are those moments that actually get picked up in our reflection of, even if it's an hour, oftentimes this research is done looking over a course of a couple of weeks, but you can even think about how it um, translates into our assessment and evaluation of our lives overall is that we tend, the moments that we tend to pay attention to in assessing our satisfaction um, and in determining what we remember are the peak moments and not peak of mountain, but the most intense feelings, um, either positive or negative, as well as the ending. Um, and mm -hmm. so that also allows you to sort of figure out, okay, how do I structure a day? How do I structure a week? How do I structure a vacation such that my attention is going to those most positive, um, like drawing your attention to those instances that were most, most satisfying, most positive. And oftentimes, even those satisfying um, moments can be very simple. Um, and also the ending, making sure that the ending um, works. Now, it's interesting, you also like, so they are less um, pulled apart from each other than we think. If you look at the research of what are those activities that people tend to or rate or experience as most positive, what are those activities that tend to be rated as the most rewarding, um, which seems to be sort of picking up on what you're pointing to as that sense of satisfaction, again, they're really highly correlated. So the spending time with uh, others whom we love, uh, whether in a sort of social context, um, with your young son you mentioned, um, with even it can actually be colleagues whom you truly connect with. Social connection is a source of spending time that is both enjoyable as well as satisfying. There are these ways of spending time that uh, the research points to as in enjoyable, but not necessarily satisfying. And that is um, watching TV, social media. And actually, as I was mentioning before, when individuals look back on how they spent their time and rate, you see that they're actually, their satisfaction is also picking up on whether it was enjoyable or not. So we have this notion, or oftentimes people have this notion that, oh, you know, I love my time on social media is like my time. It's time that I really enjoy. But as I encourage people to track their own time and coming out of the time that they spend and rating it, oftentimes people are like, actually, holy cow, I had no idea that I actually don't like the time. I have this idea that this is mm -hmm. enjoyable time. But when I look at how I feel coming out of having spent that time, um, you see that it, people don't experience it as happy in either way, that enjoyment or that satisfaction. 
Yeah, I think that is super interesting. That that description of it being enjoyable but not satisfying. I think quite a few things came to mind when you were talking about that. The social media thing, definitely, but also alcohol. I feel like that's the most typical example I can think of of the hangover, where you think something is enjoyable. Maybe it is enjoyable in the moment, but it isn't satisfying. Maybe an hour later or the next day. And I think social media for a lot of people probably has that same kind of feeling that like social media hangover. If you've spent too long scrolling and reading and looking afterwards, as you said, you might think, oh, I love looking at tweets and I love looking at people's Instagram stories. But then after you might feel like, oh, actually, what have I been doing for the last hour? Um, and, yeah. and of course, so so the book that you've written, Happier Hour, How to Spend Your Time for a Better, More Meaningful Life. You know, you and I both advocate for the idea that one hour each day will have a big impact over time, a small but effective change. So can you share some examples of how this this one hour can increase our happiness? Yeah, and it's, uh, so the reason that I actually named the book Happier Hour is because our decisions about how we spend our time, um, which does contribute to our happiness and overall sense of satisfaction and fulfillment, those decisions happen in our hours. Like, what am I going to do next? What am I going to do today? Um, But those hours sum up to our weeks, our months, our years and our life overall. Um, And so it is recognizing that these hours are the substance of our life um, and trying to think about it. And actually a big, uh, something that my research suggests and I very much um, talk about in the book is that actually taking this broader perspective of our time, thinking about our life overall, thinking about our years, clarifies what is important to us and with that clarity of what really ultimately matters to you that can be very informative and motivating in terms of how i spend my hours now and Mm. also this actually touches to um what you were asking me before about now versus later and i think that that framing actually highlights and maybe unnecessarily so the forces these trade-offs between now Mm -hmm. versus later and whereas when you take this broader perspective thinking about years and life overall that the hours now are part of that life (laughs) if you think about your time and your life as a mosaic and like all each of your hours as a tile in that mosaic and you see how they all piece together to create something really beautiful. Um, but it's by thinking about the broader work of art that then you realize just how it takes pressure off of an hour because there are many other pieces, you know, tiles in that mosaic. But it also shows that each of those hours are, are part of it. And it's a wonderful opportunity to spend it in a way that you know, when you piece them all together and put them next to each other, create something really beautiful. And again, by thinking about years and life overall, that's what clarifies not just sort of a general sense of like what's important and what matters. It's, oh, wow, for me, the life that I want to live, this is what's important and this is how I'm going to spend my hour. Yeah, I really like that idea of 
as you described, seeing the whole picture, seeing the whole thing, because you're right, that idea that it takes the pressure off. Now, this is something that I, again, I said, I said at the start, power hour, you know, I use, I talk about a lot about time, about productivity, about goal setting, that's who I am, you know, I've always been that person. And it's interesting because I feel like it's become quite a divisive thing, this idea of time as a currency. So this idea that I've often said, time is the most valuable thing you can give to another person or it's the most valuable thing we have and the pushback sometimes that I hear is well you know time isn't a currency time isn't money we shouldn't be yeah measuring how we spend it because yeah it's I guess aligned with this hustle culture and just doing more and cramming more into every single 10 minute segment of your diary which is not what I'm suggesting at all I think my take on it is often encouraging people to actually create space to create time to reclaim and to say actually if you you're more productive and again even that word if you're more productive in some areas of your life are you strategically just claiming other time back to spend on things that you love or to spend with people that you love but it is I don't know why it seems to be yeah quite divisive so have you heard that kind of debate around oh stop encouraging people to time manage and that time management is actually just this very toxic thing to be avoided yeah, and it's it's uh, interesting because I have heard the pushback, and then but I can understand why, and then I would suggest a reframing, um, which is really what um, I'm again promoting in the research and the book to make people feel fulfilled, where time management, um, shifting it away from efficiency, where you just get things done as quickly as possible so that you can check it off the list and move on to the next thing. And that's often, I think, what people think about with time management and also in our sort of doing culture of getting things done. I mean, I have to sort of counsel myself and advise myself out of my tendency towards this too of going and doing and checking things off my to-do list with my to-do list constantly running, you know, in the back of my mind. And what I instead um, encourage folks to think about, it's not about efficiency as the goal. It's about spending your time in ways that are worthwhile. And when you take that, then the time that you're spending, each one of those tiles, each one of those hours, it's not about checking a task off the list. It's about spending in a way that is worthwhile. And in some cases, that is about time to like reflect. It's time to relax. It's time to sort of get that rest and rejuvenation that you need. In some cases, it is time to sort of connect in those really sweet um, ways with the people with you. And that requires you to be present And it requires you not to be thinking about your to-do list and getting through that task and thinking about what's next. Um, Yet, that worthwhile time could also be that exercise that gives you that sort of like nourishes not only, I mean, research shows that exercise is not only, you know, good for your health, it's really good for your emotional well-being. It is effective at offsetting anxiety. It increases self-esteem. It increases a sense of self-efficacy when that sense of agency that you um, gain through exercise then can bleed over and um, help you across other activities of your days. It can also really, thinking about spending your time in worthwhile ways, um, 
inform how you spend your work hours, right? Because there's a lot of time that gets wasted um, during work of just reacting and responding to what's urgent or seemingly urgent, um, irrespective of its importance. But if we're you know, constantly um, just getting through our email inbox and constantly in meetings, that doesn't create the space for us to do the deep thinking work, the real work that, you know, yeah. is the thing that helps us along, um, like achieving our higher order goals, our purpose, um, you know, devising strategy. And so I, time management, again, just to sort of say it again, it should be shifted away from the goal of efficiency and more about spending this time, this uh, precious resource that we have in ways that are absolutely worthwhile, joyful, fulfilling, satisfying. Yes, amen. And I'm sure there are so many people that the that can relate to that feeling of being so busy at work, but not being able to get any work done. You know, I speak to quite a lot of organizations and teams, and I actually spoke to a team a few weeks ago that said, they said, you know, there's so many meetings and there's so many conversations and things that are urgent versus important that actually when they leave work, they actually go and do their best work at home, which, you know, might sound good, but it doesn't if you're then working in the evening, working at the weekend. So yeah, I think this, this idea of urgent versus important is so important, especially for, I think, more corporate organizations. But again, save that for another day. Uh, something I really wanted to talk to you about is uh, whether we can practice, whether we can learn, whether happiness is a skill. Because earlier this year, I spoke to Dr. Nate Zinser about the science of confidence. And a question that comes up a lot whenever I speak to people about confidence is the argument that, well, some people are just more confident than others. That's just their personality type. And of course, we know that confidence isn't just a personality type. It's something that we can, it is a skill, something we can practice, something we can learn. So I'm interested to know, is it the same for happiness? Are some people just a little miss sunshine? Or is this something that we can practice and get better at and, and become more happy? Yeah, um, we can absolutely practice and get better at it and make choices that make us happier. Um, looking at the research of what are the inputs into our happiness and the size of those effects, you do see that personality, our inherited disposition, has a significant effect. So yes, there are some people who are naturally sort of chronically more positive in their experience day-to-day um, -day experience than others. Um, and that's all largely driven by where they focus their attention and what they do. There's also circumstances that have a, have a surprisingly small influence on our happiness. And I say small because, and it's the surprising part is because a lot of these things that people think are the secrets to happiness, like if only I had a lot of money, if only I were super attractive, if only I was married, these sort of circumstantial factors, um, life circumstances, these have some effect, but a significantly smaller one than we expect. Um, and that could fill a whole other hour as to why these things, like if only I had a whole lot of money, then I would be happy and happy forever, isn't quite as true. Um, we, <laughs> again, we could get into that. But the third input, which I think 
is the most important because it's the part we do have control over is that a significant portion of our happiness is influenced by what we think about and what we do in our day to day, what we intentionally think about and do. And so I frame that with respect to how we choose to spend our time and how we engage, mentally engage in that time we're spending. What are we drawing our attention to? What activities are we spending our time on? And actually, I should say it the other way around, is our decisions about how we spend our time in terms of the activities can be informed. And there are activities that um, are significantly more positive for affecting our mood, for affecting our sense of satisfaction coming out of our days, coming out of our weeks um, than others. But it's not just the activities that you spend your time on. It's again, how you mentally engage in it. So mm. even if, for instance, I carve out time to spend with my daughter, like say 30 minutes, we have our weekly coffee date. Uh, we go to the coffee shop and it's this routine that we've turned into this like wonderful ritual where it's just the two of us hanging out, you know, drinking her hot chocolate, me and my flat white. But it's the activity is there and I protect the time for it. But if I'm in my head thinking about my to-do list, sort of rushing through that time, then yeah. even though I spent that time, it wouldn't have the wonderful positive impact that it could potentially have on my mood or how when I'm thinking about the week, <laughs> because, you know, I'd be like, thinking back to a time where it was just sort of moving through it and yet another check on my to-do list. Um, but if I'm fully present, so research shows that we are actually distracted a lot of the time. So there yeah. was a study that would ping people over the course of their days and ask, what are you doing? What are you thinking about? As in, are you thinking about what you're currently doing or something else? As well as how happy are you? And what they found is that we are distracted almost half the time, 47% of the time. We are not thinking and focused on what we are currently doing. Our mind is wandering somewhere else. And moreover, we're less happy when our mm -hmm. mind is wandering. We are less happy when we were, are distracted. So I talk about uh, in happier hour ways that if we, you sort of go to that first step of choosing to spend your time on an activity that will make you feel satisfied, that will give you a sense of joy, then how do you actually get the most of that activity? And I talk about how do we continue to pay attention? Because we are subject to something in the uh, research that's referred to as hedonic adaptation. That is, when we do the same thing over and over again, when we're with the same person over like for a long period of time, it stops having the same emotional effect mm. on us. That is, we mm. get used to things over time. And it's good that we get used to things when we're sort of in negative circumstances because it makes us more resilient, uh, more adaptable. But what's bad is that when we get used to even the good stuff, um, that it stops having the same emotional impact, then, then that's sort of missing out on happiness from time that we're already spending. And so I share strategies 
one which I alluded to, turning routine into ritual. So it makes that activity mm. itself more special and meaningful. But another is actually counting. How many times do you have left to do this activity? Because so often these are sort of sources of joy are these really ordinary everyday experiences. And they're so everyday, we expect them to continue to happen every day. But the fact they won't, you know, that's a wrong assumption. Mm -hmm. Our time is passing. And so if you count your times left, more often than not, people recognize that they have a small percentage left. So just as the example with my coffee date with my daughter, I calculate she's seven. We've been doing this every week. And then during my maternity leave, I bundle her up and take her to the coffee shop. But I calculate we've had about 400 coffee dates together. And <laughs> then I was like, how many do we have left? Accounting for the fact that circumstances in my life will change circumstances in her life. So she's seven. When she's 12, she'll probably rather go to the coffee shop with her friends than me. Then probably go off to college, you know, in university and live maybe in a city that I don't live in. And I calculated that we have about 230 coffee dates left. Mm -hmm. And that is 36%, less than half of our coffee dates together left. And she's only seven. And so that recognition, wow. what it does is it makes me, you know, pushes me, motivates me to make the time. So I carve out that 30 minutes, no matter how busy the week is. I schedule meetings around it. We don't say yes to things on the weekends until we've um, gone on our coffee date. But more than just spending the time, it is my mindset during that time, recognizing just how precious and limited this time is, um, yeah. you know, that my phone is put away. I'm not responding to texts. I'm not looking at my phone. My mental to-do list is quieted um, so that I get the most of that time that I'm spending. Cassie, you and I, honestly, there are so many similarities I'm listening to. You say that and I say things often to people about, you know, how many, yeah, how many times left maybe this year or next year. You know, I say that a lot. And I always say, for example, because I'm a runner and I love to run most of the time. But of course, there are times when I don't. And I often have right. this kind of encouraging message to myself about, you know, one day I will not be able to run a half marathon or one day I might not be able to run even even for an hour, but today is not that day. So, so today I'm, I'm grateful that I can run. And yeah, I think sometimes people, I, I'm definitely in that, I think you said um, chronic optimism or chronic plus, I was like, that's me. I'm <laughs> chronically optimistic, yeah. but it is, I think it's very, very helpful to look at, you know, how many times left or, or imagine a time when you're not able to do that anymore. So that one, that one, I think I'm, I'm very good at. What I am not good at, and I hope you're going to have some uh, some advice or some help for me to try is the piece you mentioned about distraction and being distracted. So yeah. in certain instances, I know I can be very present. So again, maybe it's a parent thing, but I'm so conscious of, of time with children. I'm so conscious of how quickly they grow up. And yeah, my son's 11 now. So again, the friends thing starts to happen and they want to be with their friends more. So I think when I'm with my son, 
I'm with my stepchildren. That's the time when I am present. But I think most of the rest of the time, I'm so easily distracted. If I'm out running, often I can be listening to something. But then if I'm not listening to something, I'm definitely racing through all the things in my mind about my to-do list, where I've got to go today, what time, who am I going to speak to on my podcast? What am I doing tomorrow? What am I having for dinner? And then even when I'm cooking the dinner, I'm thinking I need to do that. I'm so easily distracted. And I think what you described about being in your own head even if you for example you look forward to going on holiday and then you're on holiday and you're there at the beautiful place and you're thinking about something else so I think I know that's a shared thing I know it's a shared thing I'm being very honest and I'm hoping that people are thinking yeah I do that as well but being distracted not just by technology or notifications on our phones but just by our own racing busy mind how Mm -hmm how can we start to lessen that and to be more focused and enjoy things in the moment? Yeah. So it's so important. Um, one is the counting times left because it's like, okay, you know, it's drawing your attention to the here and now recognizing that this time itself is present, um, precious. Another, which you sort of jumped over, but I want to, um, spend a second on because it's so, it's so practical and so duh, but it's important. It is the role of our phones and our tech, like the mere presence of our phone, even if it's not, we're interacting with it, but what it is doing is like when it's on the table, it is, and we can see it, it is reminding us of all the other things we can and should be doing. And so it is, um, what I talk about is, um, carving out times when you're spending time that is really important for you not to be distracted and for you to be engaged is to carve out those times as no phone zones and putting the phone out of sight, like a way out of sight. um, So that not only are you not responding to the ping, um, but you're not even, your mind isn't going to where that phone, you know, might take you. Um, And this is important both for spending time with uh, the kids. It's also really important for that time that you're spending during the workday where you do want to get the really good work done. There's no way we will get into a flow state. You know, that state where you're so immersed in what you're doing and you're at your best. You're the most creative the most productive. And it's really satisfying when you come out of that state because you've really sort of produced at your best. There's no way you will get into a flow state if your email is open, if your phone is Mm -hmm. on. So you have to carve out sort of in your physical space, close the door if, you know, you have a door to close to your office or if you're in an open, you know, floor plan, like put on headphones to communicate to everyone around you as well as to yourself. Shut out an email, put your phone away. This is your time to sort of engage fully in what you're doing. So no phone zones. Um, Cause also, sorry, just to add on that phone yeah. part, cause it's not this thing, as you said, you like, it's kind of obvious. It's kind of like, duh, get rid of your phone, but it's real. The addiction part of our phones, the dopamine release in the brain, when you pick up the phone and you look at the notifications, I, I heard on a podcast, oh, this is a long time ago, actually about two years ago, but it, I, I stuck with me and I was just so this lady said that she is so addicted to her phone and she was talking about this, you know, dopamine hit, the, just the rush of wanting to check her phone all the time. And she described a weekly meeting that she has at work, which 
It's four hours long. And when you're in that meeting, of course, you can't just sit scrolling on your phone in front of all of your work colleagues. So she said that she would frequently leave the meeting to go to the bathroom and she didn't even oh need gosh. to go to the bathroom, but she just wanted to check her phone, look through really quickly, you know, quick, quick check of emails, quick look at Instagram, quick look at anything and then go back to the meeting. And she said, typically she would do that maybe four times in the four hours, but she wanted to do it more because that thing is that, you know, it's so easy for us to say, oh yeah, you know, we're addicted to our phones, but it is real. Like that addiction for a lot of people is more, it's more addictive than arguably alcohol or food. They just want to look at their phone all the time. Yeah. And even, I mean, that is a very extreme case, but even for the rest of us who aren't, you know, even quote unquote addicted, just the phones are a source of destruction. So I'm not even saying, you know, like get rid of your phone overall. What I am saying is that during those times that are like your best times, your most worthwhile times, carve those out as no phone so, so that you're deliberately off your phone with phone away during that time. And yes, over the course of, you know, the rest of the day, <laughs> like fine, the phone is available to you. But the addiction is real. Actually, the course that I teach applying the science of happiness to life design. And that is picked up um, in the, the assignments from the course are, I share in the exercises in the book. The One of the first ones that I do in the course is a digital detox. So I have my students for at some point that week, and I teach MBA students and executive MBA. So there's adults. Um, and as for six hours at some point that week is to disconnect totally. So that is the full on like for the addiction is to with like force you into withdrawal. And I will say that initially, yeah, my students get really anxious about even the idea of this, like six hours, you know, people need to reach me, I won't be productive, you know, all this concern. And what the, the interesting thing is the cadence of everyone is very similar. It's like that first hour, actually, people are quite anxious because they're so used to that checking, like even like they reach for where their phone usually is and it's not there. Yeah. But hour two and the rest, they then like settle into and are very aware of what they are currently doing. And it is so like it's so freeing and wonderful and oftentimes like you know the students come out there ended up more productive than had they been on their phone because it actually gave them the space to do the stuff that you know was really important and they did want to do and when they were spending it with other people they were it was more connecting than you know sitting across the table where you're just scrolling and not having yeah. the conversation so the digital like but i don't i a digital detox is helpful that sort of big six hours um, to to give that, you know, to show you that the benefits of being off and that you can do it. But even just as I mentioned, these like little no fun zones throughout your week, there's also uh, my in my experiments, we showed weekends. So, <laughs> you know, we're always sort of waiting for vacations as our break from this like go, 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 do, do, do mode. Um, mm -hmm. But we do get many people get two days off every week as a break and the weekend. But our weekends don't feel like breaks because we continue, you know, to be in that going, doing mode, checking items off of our to do list, often times social obligations, but, you know, like going through 
the routine of weekend. And we ran an experiment where we randomly assigned uh, working professionals heading into a regular weekend. We told half of them, treat this weekend like a vacation. We told the other half, treat this weekend like a regular weekend. And then on the Monday after the weekend, we reconnected with everyone, measured their happiness again. And we found that those who had treated the weekend like a vacation were significantly happier. And then the question is why? Did they spend the time on the weekend any differently? And actually the work shows are what we found was that they did a little bit, but the shifts in behavior wasn't what translated into their experience on Monday, as well as actually they enjoyed the weekends more, those who treated it like a vacation. What really it was, was that they were more in the here and now in the weekend and the vacation condition. That is, they were in a vacation mindset. And what that vacation mindset apparently is, is not going through your to-do list. It is giving yourself the break just to be. So it's shifting you from doing mode to being mode. And even if you're like still taking, you know, your son to a soccer game, that shift of like, oh, this is something I'm doing to check off versus this is like a vacation. I'm outside watching my son, you know, like yeah, even the way you're engaging in that very activity has um, changed. Um, and so that is a, another way to remove distraction during mm -hmm. the breaks, treating them during the week as breaks that they are of like treating it like a vacation. And it doesn't have to be the whole weekend. It could even be like Thursday nights, like Thursday nights are my vacation nights, you know? Yeah. And then you- I, I love this idea. That time um, without that incessant needing to get things done. Yeah, I love this idea of the vacation mindset and bringing it to the weekend because I'm sure we've all seen, I think one of the biggest signs that there's just too many things crammed into our schedules and our diaries and our life is this, I know it's become almost like a comedy meme culture, but people say, oh, I need one weekend to do all of my life admin from the week. So the laundry, the cooking, the shopping, the cleaning my house, all the admin. And then I need a weekend to see my friends and have a social life and yeah. go to yoga class. Then I need a weekend to sleep. Oh, and then I need a weekend. To, and it's, it's yeah, I think it's kind of a testament to the fact that we have so much sometimes crammed into our schedules, this idea of trying to fill every day, every week, every hour with no space that just, yeah, leaves us feeling overwhelmed. And I really like, the idea of saying, well, if you're still going to do those things, actually maybe just shifting your mindset to saying this is the vacation mode. I don't have to be thinking and planning and checking and just be there and just just enjoy it. Because essentially the time is this, those 48 hours are going to pass, whether you, however you choose to use them. So I think yeah. we should all we should all adopt this this idea of the vacation mindset. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Since the 
pandemic, I think we're witnessing a shift in people's priorities. And there seems to be a much more focus on experiences and how Uh, specifically with Gen Z and Gen Alpha, they say that they value new experiences more than new products. So when it comes to to gifts, as an example, like a birthday gift or or planning things for the new year, it's more about, yeah, where can I go? What new thing can I do as opposed to what new thing can I buy? So have you seen this and why do you think that this is happening? Is this, is this, this, I feel like this must be some way related to spending time and, and happiness. Absolutely. And it's it's actually picking up on um, a positive uh, fact that research has shown psychologically that our happiness from experiential purchases um, is greater and lasts longer than our, the happiness we enjoy from material purchases. Um, and then in my own research, I found this um, with respect to gift giving and receiving receiving, we found that recipients of experiential gifts um, feel closer and more connected to the gift giver than uh, recipients Mm -hmm. of material gifts. Now, what's interesting, and so like examples of those experiential gifts are, you know, like going out to dinner, uh, going to a concert, going on a little trip. And in the gift giving context, we found that the benefit, the connecting benefit of receiving an experiential gifts happens even when the gift giver does not do the experience with you. So for instance, if I give you for Christmas a gift certificate to go to a wonderful restaurant, I don't actually have to go with you for it to have the same connecting effect. That is, when you go and use the gift certificate and are having that meal, I'm sort of with you vicariously in your mind and you mm. still feel that sense of connection. The reason that experiences um, have such a wonderful effect on our happiness in the gift-giving context as well as even buying experiences for yourself is because of a few things. One is when I was talking about the role of hedonic adaptation is that things that we have put on our shelves and are sort of in our houses day to day, we get used to them. Whereas experiences, we continue to revisit that experience in the stories we tell, in our memory by looking at photos. So we don't get used to it over time. Um, And when we remember it, it continues to have that wonderful emotional impact. Also experiences tend to be more social. So when you are going on a trip, when you are going out to dinner, it tends to involve other people. And if there's any sort of, you know, like the most fundamental contributor to our happiness is a genuine sense of social connection, Um, as well as experiences are unique. (laughs) So even if, you know, like you go out to a meal, your experience at that restaurant is yours and like with the people that you're sharing it with alone, it's not exactly the same as what everyone else has. Um, and so for all of those reasons, uh, experiences, investing in them and uh, paying attention to them, remembering them um, is a wonderful source of continued happiness. 
Yeah, yeah, I agree. I'm thinking myself right now about some of those experiences, things that I enjoy, things I enjoy doing with other people. And sometimes it's things that for a, a silly example would be going to the cinema and getting popcorn and watching a movie when, you know, for many of us, we have different streaming platforms at home. So we might have, I don't know, Disney plus Netflix. We might have all these things where we could stay home and watch a movie, but we'll still go out and pay quite a lot of money to, to have that experience. And we still enjoy it. But I personally still really enjoy doing that and especially the popcorn there's something about cinema popcorn is so different to just having popcorn at home and i love it so much and i think you know i've heard people before say oh the cinema's become so overpriced you know especially if you're a family you know taking three kids that always become so overpriced and and i re i recognize that you know yeah experiences they're not always they're not always cheap but there's something about yeah going to a different place going to a space having sharing that moment with other people that is is really really important and hopefully it you know will will create those memories for the people that we spend the time with as well so before we move on to the last part of the podcast i really want to ask you you know at the start of the year people often myself included look ahead at the year. So they look at 2023 and they might have a financial goal. They might have a health goal. They might have a travel destination they'd love to visit, or for me, a race that I'd love to tick off the list. But I was conscious earlier on when you were talking about, uh, again, being present in the moment and thinking about the future and actually this idea of satisfaction and doing things that are, yeah, satisfying and enjoyable. It does, as it is the start of the year, if people are like me, goal setters, and they are looking ahead, are there any things that we should consider when we sit down to make this list? You know, for some people it might be uh, New Year's resolutions, but when we sit down to make this list, are there some things we should consider that are going to uh, ensure that we are doing things that we enjoy, things that are going to bring us happiness and satisfaction now and in the long term as well. Yeah. And I would encourage folks to take that longer view, not just thinking about like, okay, this year, but actually um, think about their life overall. And I will share a exercise that at the at <laughs> first you might be like, oh my God, this doesn't sound at all happy. Um, but it is a very poignant one and powerful one. And that is to actually write your own eulogy. So projecting way forward to the end of your life, assuming that you've lived a long life, what do you want people to say about you? What words do they want that um, you want people to use to describe you? What legacy do you want to live? And one of my students was like, you know, professor, I'm not comfortable thinking about my death. It evokes anxiety. And I'm like, all right, let me reframe it. Write um, what life you want to live. Because this is actually an mm -hmm. exercise of thinking about what life do you want to live? And in writing that down, in writing your eulogy, it will highlight what does ultimately matter to you? What are your values? What is your purpose? And with that clarity, that will inform what you should prioritize in the coming year. It, should inf it will inform how you invest your hours in mm. the coming weeks. Um, and so that is what I would encourage folks um, to think about. And oftentimes, even though it is the sort of lofty uh, task and uh, it is, it will highlight those simple moments 
that are so precious and that are available to you right now, um, how we show up in our day to day uh, and exist not only in our own experience, but how we impact others and living in their sort of lives and in their hearts and in their minds. Um, it's all it's all sort of happening now. Yes, I personally, I love that exercise. I like the idea of it. I really understand the, the sentiment of that. And especially the part you said about what do you want other people to say? Because I often say that what people say about you when you're not in the room is true. And what I mean by that is that, you know, our actions and our behaviors dictate, they, they speak on our behalf. So for example, if you're really focused and this isn't a good or bad thing, but if you're super focused on your career and achieving success and uh, I don't know, money or, or whatever, it's not to say it's good or bad, but your actions and behaviors will dictate that. Whereas if you, yeah, do you want people to say, she was so successful or she was, uh, you know, an incredible boss. Maybe that's what you want people to say. But if you want people to say, oh my gosh, she was so kind and generous and fun, or she was so uh, thoughtful or she, whatever the thing is, do your actions and behaviors align to those things and to those values? So I, I personally think that's a really, really great exercise for people to do and to consider. Um, and it's not, it's not, you know, nobody's perfect. It's not easy. I don't think we all live perfectly aligned to our best self all the time. But I think at the start of the year, it's a wonderful time to think ahead and to think, well, yeah, what, what can I do now today, this hour to be intentional about becoming the person that I want to? So let's talk about the power hour, because of course I ask every guest on the show to share with us how they spend the first hour of their day. So we have talked so much about time. And of course you are a professor and an expert on this. So we'd love to know, how do you spend the first hour of your day? I go outside for a run. <laughs> so it is my time. I talked all about the role of social connection, which is so important. Um, but that first hour of my day, I it is time for me to be outside in nature, moving my body and gives me that sense of that I have plenty of time in the day to do what really matters to me. And so I can start the day feeling time affluent as opposed to time poor. Cassie, if we, I mean, if it wasn't for the fact that we don't look alike, we could have been separated at birth. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, the people like, I know she goes for a run in the morning. That is literally something that I've been doing for such a long time. And it's, and for me, again, similar reason, the solitude part and knowing for the rest of the day, I, I absolutely love that. So I share that with you as well. Well, thank you so much for your time, for giving us your time. And just one last time, the book is Happier Hour and it's available here in the UK from the 12th of January. So make sure you grab a copy or of course download on Audible. I am a big Audible um, book listener. So it's also available on Audible as well. Thank you so much for joining us, Cassie. Thanks so much for having me. This was fun. Have an awesome week, everyone. Thanks again for tuning in and I'll be back next week with another episode. See you. Hold up. What was that? 
boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. Mm. 